0: If you, you can, I don't want to embarrass you. I had enough difficulty getting my wife to come up. <laughs> uh, so if you you don't cooperate, that's fine.
1: I understand. He's now looking
2: lonely. Uh, my
0: name is Tim Bolton, and on behalf of of Highfield Church here, I want to welcome you very much to the uh, question and answer session. And all that my job is to say, please come and sit down. And secondly, to uh, introduce our chairperson for the evening, Eleanor Speary. Eleanor, it um, works at the university. I asked her what she did, and the explanation is so long and so convoluted that I have great pleasure in welcoming Eleanor Speary, who works at the university. <laughs> Hello. Am
3: I going to stand up or we'll sit down? Am I on? Okay. Is this thing on? Yeah. No. Is it on? Have I done something wrong?
0: No, you're on now. Yeah. Am I
3: on now? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm Anne-Laure Spearing. I know that a lot of you, I do work at the university. If anyone's interested, I can explain to you later. Um, so I've been asked to chair this evening. Um, I'm going to start by asking our lovely panel here to introduce themselves in less than one minute so
1: starting with uh, i'm nick pollard i speak a bit and i write a bit and i organize uh i'm what's sometimes called a social entrepreneur i start uh, charities and uh, social enterprises um, So that's i'm peter May. my training was in medicine
4: where i was a generalist a general practitioner and my interest in sort of questions we have tonight is generalist
5: you know, an expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less, an expert is something who knows less and less about more and more. That's great. Nice. I'm another Peter. I'm Peter Williams. Uh, I'm a philosopher by academic training. Uh, I spend my time uh, writing and uh, speaking uh, about Christianity in the public square. And uh, there are some of my uh, books on philosophical, uh, but also uh, topics to do with the historical Jesus. Uh, or on the uh, bookstore at the back. I'm David barton Torrance. I work here, as you might be able to tell from what I'm
6: wearing. I'm a curate, just sort of like a junior vicar. Uh, my academic background is in ethics. I've done written um, yeah, more and more about less and less within a specific field than ethics. I'm also very interested in questions of Christian doctrine. I'm
0: Kate keith I work at the University. I'm a biochemist. Um, uh, as part of my time I'm up there uh, so I guess I'm here for the science to type questions I also work part time in the Farad Institute for Science and Religion in Cambridge uh, so again the interface uh, between uh, science and Christian belief and I'm also a very strong interest in bioethics so biology and ethics okay. I'm Trisha
2: Williams and I have spent a lot of time thinking about Bible sources and developing those for a wide range of audiences and I've just submitted a PhD thesis which is great relief. but so um, I've been looking at the area of how dementia impacts on faith and vice versa.
3: Wonderful thank you very much so just a few words about how this evening is going to work as you know it's the questions it's a session you know, just full of, um, it's an opportunity for you all to ask whatever questions you would like to. Um, so we have this, this different ways that you can ask the questions. We have this number up here, uh, you can just text your question to, and we have the lovely Tim here who is receiving the texts, writing them onto bits of paper and giving them to me. If you prefer uh, pen and paper, there is, you have been given pens, bits of paper, they are around, um, we have a basket here. I don't know if you want to just kind of drop them off in the basket, or we can circulate the basket from time to time. Um, and we will uh, crack on. Um, can I make? A, can I ask that to you very much? And, oh, sorry. And also, of course, you're very welcome to you know put up your hands and just ask a question. Um, obviously, please do try to phrase what you say as a question um, for the panel to try to answer. I will then defer to the panel and see who would like to take each particular question, and maybe will a couple of people would like to answer, or or whatever. And finally, afterwards, uh, when the time comes to wrap up, there'll be refreshments uh, at the back. Nobody will be rushing off, so our panel will be here. There's various members of church staff. Um, If you want to continue discussions, um, if anything any particular issues that been raised you want to talk further or if you want to pray with anyone or anything, anyone will all be around no one's rushing off. So if we start the first question in no particular order um the feeding of the 5,000 is it a parable or a miracle? Who would like to tackle that one?
5: You better allocate. Okay. I I would say in a sense it's it's both. Um, It's, I think, a historical event. Interestingly, it's the one miracle that all four of the the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible uh, talk about. Uh, So we've got um, independent uh, evidence uh, from different sources that that happened. But I think it was, if you like, an enacted miracle against the Old Testament background, particularly about when Israel comes out of Egypt in the Exodus and God provides food for them um, when they're in the Exodus, uh, which is called bread from heaven, uh, and Jesus talks about himself as as the bread from heaven, the thing that we really need from God, and he's using that provision of food uh, against the Old Testament background to say things about who he thinks that he is. So it's both a a miracle and a parable.
2: Anyone else want to say that it's it's interesting with that particular miracle parable. Of course, that often comes, one of the places it comes is in the middle of John's Gospel, where it's finished by um, Jesus saying, I am the bread of love. So it's very interesting that Jesus often teaches his disciples by saying, I fed these people, and I am the bread of love as well. It's just interesting the way the text works there. Thank you. Changing topic, I will try to group the questions a bit, but I do require a lot.
5: Does the Church of England believe in purgatory? Purgatory. Purgatory. No, oh, pur- <laughs> purgatory. Two very different topics.
1: <laughs> we better ask the official. Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe the answer
6: is no. Um, I suspect there's. If you want to ask a more satisfactory answer than that, by all means do put your hand up now Or grab me after a had coffee. Um, I suspect there's more to that question. I don't think we
4: believe in purgatory. Does the Bible believe in purgatory?
0: Well, I think the church's
1: position is that the Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory, which is why we don't believe it. We ought to perhaps just uh, uh, explain what purgatory is. Uh, I'm not an expert, i refer to David, but my understanding is it is a doctrine in some areas of the Christian church uh, that after you die, you have an opportunity to pay off your sins um, uh, before final judgment or work your way uh, into uh, God's presence. Um, And yet, Peter's saying the Bible is very clear that some. uh, Jesus came and took the, took the death penalty for us so that we can be uh, forgiven. So it's not down to us uh, seeking to earn our way uh, to heaven, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Um, and uh, we can't earn our way there either before death or after death.
4: Can I add, I, I do think this is a, a doctrine that has got enormous importance for Christian living. Uh, my wife and I went to a funeral of a friend recently where clearly purgatory was part of the established belief in that church. And the whole tone of the thing was uncertainty. Uh, uh, where does she go from here? Now, the Gospel, seems to me, is that we live this life now knowing that we're forgiven people. So Jesus said to the, the, the man on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, and our Christian living and confidence should reflect that and not, "Ah, what happens afterwards, am I going to suffer for my sins? The cross says no, the debt's paid.
2: Um, I hope it's okay if I put a slightly different point of view. Mm -hmm. Am I on? Am I on now? Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, Just a, a different point of view from I guess sitting here in that culture of dayland. There is the other point of view. You could say, um, what does God make for people, not what can we do for Him." So for example, if you say that God's heart is always looking for people and seeking after them, what happens if you get to death and you haven't actually consciously turned to God? And do you think God gives up on you? Of course, I would say, I don't know, but I believe in a God who loves. So, probably controversially, I'm just wondering about whether we could say that God loves more than we can say or understand. So, who knows what happens to somebody after they have died? If we believe in a God who loves, and God wants to draw people back to himself, and as you said, Jesus has paid the price for our sin. Following on, so
3: somewhat related, we have um, Do people who are not Christians have any chance of heaven? Quite similar. Anything to add? Uh,
5: yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think it, the Bible is very clear, it seems to me that God isn't in the business of punishing people uh, simply for being ignorant uh, about him, or ignorant of the way in which he has provided for us to be saved. Um, I think it's clear in the Bible that that if people are separated from God in the hereafter, it's because they, they don't want to be with God that they choose to reject God's offer of salvation, which I believe is in Christ, uh, and that then meet, may lead you on to, to wondering about the, the possibility of uh, what might happen to someone who is you know, in this life about how to be saved and get to the next life. Does that mean, therefore, that God must um, uh, clue them in on his plan, uh, as it were? Um, but I think that the, the, the central point is God is not about, uh, oh, you, know, you didn't hear about me or you're just ignorant. Therefore, I'm going to punish you. It is you are a sinner who I have I'm extending an offer of salvation to. You. I take upon myself uh, what it what it requires to to forgive you. And it says in the Bible that He is not uh, God is not willing that any uh, should perish, but that all but wants all to come to eternal life. Um, so. Uh, I think we must therefore say that there is at least a a possibility, depending upon that person's choice about how they relate to God, that they have the possibility of relating to God, um, where and how that comes about is kind of a secondary discussion. Can I just add to that? I think that
0: that God is is kind and just and fair and loving on, on, on all of those things. And it is not like God's character is pretty said to condemn somebody for what they don't know. But that's not an excuse for those who do know, who then positively, determinedly reject God and say, I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. That's a different issue altogether. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a helpful um, concept, well, I think it's helpful, others might disagree, but a helpful concept by, uh, developed by a Roman Catholic theologian called Karl Rahner, uh, who talks about anonymous Christians. Uh, people who haven't actually heard the gospel, haven't understood, um, and and yet they've responded to the measure of light uh, that they have received. Um, And I find that very helpful. Although I do have to say uh, that um, uh, if you're here this evening and you're thinking, oh, perhaps I'll just be an anonymous Christian, um, I think actually the cards are a bit stacked against you because you've actually got the opportunity to hear. So, so sorry about that. Uh, but uh, uh, so, but those who, who genuinely haven't heard and haven't understood, uh, I think the concept of anonymous Christians um, is helpful. But then those who have heard, we have a chance and a choice to decide how are we going to respond to the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus.
4: The other thing you haven't said is that the Psalm, what the psalmist said is that God's Word has gone out to the whole of creation. And this is, I think, what is behind Paul's statements that people suppress the truth. There is something about being human that speaks of God. It speaks of us being created beings, and we live in a world that's a created world. So it testifies again and again about the design, the purpose, the meaning, and the hope there is in the world that's being made. So all of us have basic information, and we either respond to that, and seek after God, or turn our backs from Him. Um,
2: I, I, I know that maybe I was a bit just hitting my bets there, um, but someone mentioned the thief on the cross, and I was just thinking, there was a man who definitely didn't know about God, but nevertheless, in extremity, he turned to God, he chose to turn to Jesus on the cross, he chose to seek God for help. And therefore, he to him recognise recognising God, he's recognising his need of God. And Jesus said, yet today we will be in paradise. And I love that story. Because often you, know, you think that people in extremity who have lived a life perhaps without God, there's no hope. And of course, in the end, um, of course, it's best to respond to Christ while you've got time to enjoy the relationship with him. But I think God never says no hope. He always wants us to come to him
6: even the people on the cross. May I I add a final? Um, We can think of salvation as getting into heaven or not. Um, And it's better and it's more interesting than that. Um, Jesus said, "I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What salvation means is coming into relationship with God the Father, the creator of all of this, through Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. He loves us so much that he went to a brutal death for everyone, even um, praying for those who were in the process of executing him. So that's how much God loves us. Absolutely. He is an unconditionally loving God. He loves, he loves anyone you might be worried about more than you do. Um, and he wants us to come into a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Now the only way that's offered is Jesus. And that's not simply an arbitrary decision. That's not to say, well, I, I, I want it to be this way, and if anyone else tries to do it another way, tries to find another path up the mountain, we'll tuff, I'm going to close it off, even though it's a perfectly good path. God has taken what is ours, in order that we might have what is his. He's entered into our case, he's taken our case, in order to bring us into relationship with him. Because God is in himself relationship. Jesus is the one way to God, because he is the one way in which we can share in his relationship with God the Father. And that's simply what salvation is. That's what we were made for. And so then when we worry about someone who might not come into that relationship, if we're worried about that, well, we have to know that it's not sharing the gospel or making decisions. It isn't a matter of trying to avoid the wrath of God. It's to respond to the love of God, the God who loves everyone unconditionally. And so if someone is condemned, and the Bible is, does open that up as a possibility, we have to hold the, hold the fact that God loves his enemies. It, we don't necessarily need to be able to make make perfect sense of that. But we do know is that God loves us. He opens us away, up, up a way to himself in Jesus for a very good reason. And that's what we have to respond to.
3: Thank you very much. I must say that we've got a lot of fantastic questions here. Yes, and they are asked, supplementary of course. <coughs> a question. question, please. Uh,
4: Seems to me, what happens to all the people like Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, all sorts, who do not believe in Christ, do not subscribe to believe in Christ, and indeed all those who came B.C. before the time of Christ, did did they go to heaven? Did God still love them? Presumably, presumably,
3: I'm a bit puzzled. Frankly, can anyone? and actually the next question i was going to come to um if i can just read that because it's it's on very much similar theme uh what makes you think that christianity is the right religion to follow and by following it do you think all other religions are wrong uh, who likes like to start us off
5: uh, well let's see if we can bundle these together so yeah uh, it follows if you think that christianity is true um and we can talk about the reasons for thinking that that's kind of a separate thing if you think christianity is true of course you think that anything that contradicts christianity at any point is false at that point Um, so i think that, that christianity not only has a lot of truths but it is it is the truth it is the revelation of jesus who is I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Christ is the truth about God and how he wants to relate to us, and so on. So any system of thought, way of life, or so on, that stands at any point in contradiction to, to Jesus and to his gospel is wrong at that point. Uh, and that's just what it is to think that something is true. And of course, all the people who, who you know, think that Islam is true or that Buddhism is true, and so on, must similarly think that where Christianity contradicts them as it does, they are right, and, and Christianity uh, is wrong. Um, so it, it's not that you know truth has this fundamental sort of, um, in a sense, narrow nature, but that's just the nature of truth. So um, once you think there are good reasons for believing whatever, of course you're going to think that everything else is less true than that, if we, if we put it that way. So that that's one uh, fundamental point that I think will open uh, up for someone else to address some
1: of the other points there I would sorry. Oh. Sorry. Uh, I would just tender that a little bit I would never use the word uh, wrong uh, about another faith because I, I don't think that's helpful um, I think I, I struggle for words to kind of say but I, the closest uh, I can get is incomplete because all religions are striving after God looking, responding to the measure of God that that they've seen around them, as, as Peter was saying in the Psalms about God revealing himself uh, in the world, but the Book of Romans uh, talks about that. Um, so all, all religions are, are striving to find a way to God. The difference, the unique difference, it seems to me, uh, in the Christian faith is that that's based upon God himself coming down to us in the person of Jesus. So I wouldn't say that I'm right. I would, nor would I say other religions are wrong, I would say other religions are incomplete, striving for, and I wouldn't say that I'm right, but I'd say that Jesus claims to be right, he claims to be the truth, and he claims to be God, come to earth to tell us that, that God exists, to provide a way for us to respond to him. So my faith is in Jesus, not in my Belief and my hoping that I'm right because I'm not. One thing I do know is I've got lots of things wrong. I'm not infallible. If I was, I'd apply for the job in Rome, but uh, I, I, I'm not infallible. So, but I'm convinced that Jesus is.
4: You raised the question about the people before Christ, the Old Testament people. There's that wonderful chapter in the book of Hebrews that talks about all the heroes of faith, and from Abraham, onwards, these people trusted God and the whole picture is that God welcomed them and owned them. The implication of that must be that the cross of Christ, at a given point in history, worked backwards in history as well as forwards. It was a death for the sins of the whole world. And so Abraham, who only had ideas of the Messiah who was to come, actually had his grounding in his forgiveness through the cross uh, thousands of years later.
3: Thank you.
5: So yeah, no, I was just going to say I, I think this uh, going back to our discussion about the possibility of salvation after death and so on as well. I, I, I think um, I don't think the Bible gives us a picture that in the, in in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be sort of two classes of citizens. There's going to be the Christians in the new heavens and the earth, and all the other people who are saved but aren't Christians that is all in Christ. Um, so uh, I think uh, the Bible gives a, a picture where Christ will be all in all, it says. Everyone will be in Christ, uh, and therefore that, that must be... I, I think the corollary of that is everyone must have an opportunity to respond to God's offer of being in Christ, whether they were born you know, before he existed or uh, in some you know, jungle in, in wherever and they've never heard of him even though they're living nowadays or whatever. Um, So I I think that ties back into that conversation. And and Jesus, you know, talking about Abraham again, said, you know, Abraham uh, rejoiced to see my day. Uh, um, As well, I think there may be a a hint there. Um, Not only that Abraham had had a certain foreknowledge about a messiah uh, and so on, um, but that... um, Abraham is someone who, as the Son of God, Christ knows and talks about knowing and being before Abraham, and Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and that Christ will be all in all eventually, and therefore everyone must have an opportunity to be saved in the full biblical sense of the term, which is, as David was saying, being in a relationship with God through Christ. Can I add something
0: about respect for other religions as well? Uh, it's uh, it's not that they're all totally wrong no. they, they are God seekers um, and that wherever truth is found it is God's truth there is only one truth and there are in other religions aspects of truth, aspects of, of love and kindness but just not the complete thing um, so I have tremendous respect for other religions while yet saying that Christ said he was the way, the truth and the life they haven't got, as Nick was saying, the whole picture. Not that I've got the whole picture, but Christ. And yeah. gives that. Um, so I emphasize, I, 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 again, respect for other religions. Even know uh, And part of that respect is enough to say, I, I, I don't agree with you. And I think sometimes saying I don't agree is to respect to say that they've taken a different point of view and I've understood it. And, and I don't follow their point of view as well. Thank
3: you. We have so many fantastic questions here. I'm slightly concerned we're not going to do justice to all of them. But We'll have to think about what we do with any of the ones that we don't get to. So um, I'm going to put sort of two together um, on the topic of suffering. Um, Firstly, how can you explain that a God of love causes or allows people to suffer chronic or painful illness? and then in brackets, promise sufferer. And somebody else asked, why do young children get so ill and die?
2: Um, My area of research has been dementia. And of course, you know, this question about this um, disease suddenly begin to affect people's lives. So a big area of challenge for this is the question of the obviously. This is where God and suffering actually come together, I tell. So it's exactly that first question, how can we explain a God who is a God of love and who is all-powerful? How can we announce his suffering? As a Christian, I have to say that um, we live in a fallen world, i.e. the world that has moved away from God's way and it's broken in all sorts of ways. From outside of our Christian faiths, I would say that our world has chosen the way of modernism, the way of enlightenment, which said that in the end, rationalism um, can solve all problems. So, of course, we should be asking God, why is he suffering? We should be asking medicine, why is he suffering? And if we want to ask that question as Christians, and say God, as a Christian believer, why is this happening? Well, again, biblically, I would say God has given the body of Christ, the church, here and now, as a people who are living out his life. So the response actually has been entrusted to us as people, not to God. So it's not much about God, you're not all-powerful, you're not sovereign. it's more church. How can we, between one another, serve
6: the other person, and whilst trusting in God and hoping in Him in the way that we said. Thank you. Um, thank you. I, I don't know why God allows suffering, both generally uh, or specifically. I, I don't know, um, and uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the kind of philosophical question about evil. I think, in honesty, it's the one argument which I think probably does lower the probability the Christian faith history. I think it's a really good argument. Um, as, a, as a teenager, I was particularly interested in the question, um, just, that's why, that's why I, I love philosophy. I, I had some cancer uh, when my mum uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, so I was confronted with a, a dying mother who was wonderful. I, you know, why on earth would God allow her to die? And I, I don't know. I was, I was comforted, somewhat, by the answers that I had. I actually found it really useful. I think one of the, the free will defense, I think is a really is it's actually quite similar to I think some of what Trish has been saying, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I find very helpful. Um, it argues simply that we are we in a fallen and a broken world. God allows us a certain amount of freedom. And uh, freedom, when, we're, uh, when we often choose the wrong, creates utter chaos. And God certainly intervenes. Sometimes he intervenes. I don't know why he doesn't always intervene, but it's not surprising that I don't know the mind of God in any particular instance. Maybe he does intervene quite a lot of time. However, it's clearly chaos, and it seems that God does allow a certain amount uh, of honoring our freedom to do wrong. Uh, And that's not simply, I don't think that that simply explains moral evils, things like violence. I think it might also go some way to explain the supposed natural evils, how the world is in such disarray but, so I was comforted by those, because I thought, okay, hang on a second, I think the Christian faith can be rational. I think that might be a sufficient answer. I don't know if it's the right answer, but I think it shows that God could exist. I then had to look at God and say, what kind of God am I worshiping? Well, it's a God who takes evil so seriously that he was willing to become a human being and be tortured to death. So it's not a God who, who, who's just indifferent. It's a God who cares very, very deeply. I couldn't really get so angry uh, with God who's lost his son when I was losing my mother. Um, And I also know that Jesus promises uh, that he he died, he rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to pray with us in our suffering. And I know that my mum went to death knowing that Jesus didn't just care hadn't just die for her, it was even then when she was really suffering, uh, praying for her. I hope that goes some way to answering.
4: Jesus was born into what was arguably the most advanced civilization the world has ever known. Uh, and the, the creativity of the Romans and all that they did from their roads, their buildings, we still admire and uh, I'm so impressed with. Uh, down the track. And yet, it was a society that was shot through with tremendous brutality and callousness. If you have a child you did not want, you just left it on the rubbish dump to perish. Um, if you wanted entertainment, you'd go to the amphitheatre and see people thrown to the lions and slaughtered. Um, one emperor apparently had a particular delight in seeing dwarfs kill women in the amphitheatre. Now, the light of Christ came into this vicious, harsh, cruel world and showed love and compassion. And over the next two or three hundred years, there was a massive shift in the culture. And people turned, following Christ, they started to care for their neighbors, care for their children, um, and, and bring humanity and, and things that we now in our society take for granted and think that they're just you know people are nice and we, we just do good things. Actually the way we behave now is because of Christ uh, who you know, think, think of the Hollywood uh, scenario the sort of promiscuity and the brutality that is is lurking in our culture all the whole time. Christ challenges all such behaviour and sends us out to love one
1: another, as he has loved us. I'll just say one little thing. I'm just conscious that um, one of those questions there ended in brackets, a sufferer. When we suffer uh, ourselves, or we see our loved ones suffer, it's perfectly natural and understandable that we cry out, uh, why doesn't God do anything about this? And it's okay to ask, uh, why, the question why Jesus himself on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask the question why. Um, my understanding of the Bible and my experience and that of others in the church uh, has been that the answer to that question, uh, why doesn't God do something about it, is he will do, and he is doing. Uh, he will do, that there will come a time when there is no more suffering. Or crying or mourning or death. If you want to find out what happens at the end of the world, read the end of the book and it tells you that's the way it's going to be. Uh, but while we wait for that, meanwhile God is doing, uh, my understanding of Scripture, my understanding of my experience, is that God doesn't so much take away our suffering as transform it. Uh, and that's harder to understand and harder to accept, but God can transform our suffering and transforming us and our relationship with other people our understanding of other people, our empathy for other people while we wait for that complete solution to to something that will come uh, in in the new heaven and the new earth. Can I take the free will
0: argument just a little bit further in the way that God has established this world with natural principles that work uh, and that those natural principles are led to the way that we are, uh, physiologically, biochemically, uh, spiritually, psychologically. And a lot of those things have an upside and a downside. Uh, water refreshes, it drowns. Fire warms, it burns, and, and, and so on. Lots of the natural events that happen in the world, whether it's volcanoes or earthquakes, uh, are turned into disasters, but actually they are ways sometimes in which the world refreshes itself and becomes uh, more fertile. So there's, in there, there, there many ways, there's an upside and a downside to the way in which God has made the world so that it, it is free. Um, and uh, but God himself steps into that not to uh, take the suffering away, not to say that earthquakes don't happen or that cancers don't happen, but a God who stands alongside and says, I'm with you even in uh,
4: those awful circumstances.
2: Sorry, one one thing I was just thinking about. That often we think of suffering, maybe I know it's personal for for many of us as well, but sometimes we think about it as an objective thing. Somebody who's suffering terribly and you think, why? Or it's that part of the world where things go wrong, and you think, why? But actually I know I have learned, and I'm sure you have too, that when you see somebody who is suffering terribly, as David was saying, what you see in them if they are a Christian often is the mind of Christ. But <laughs> well, obviously speaking as a Christian, I think at the sentiment is about the paradox of when we're furthest from God, it's then that somebody comes close to him. I know in my, my research, sorry about this is on my mind the moment, people with dementia when they really, um begin to, to lose sight of all sorts of precious things in their lives. <coughs> when well, I ask them, do you feel God is distant from you now? They said, closer, nearer. Because the paradox is that very often when we're in extremity, then we draw closer to God. And maybe sometimes in our lives, that's why those bad things come into our lives, that they turn to God. But also, something, it teaches us something. It teaches us when we see the grace of God in somebody's life, because they're drawing closer to him in the midst of it a terrible
4: illness. thank you so Must <coughs> that c.s lewis's comment about the megaphone said, mm-hmm. suffering is god's megaphone to, to 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 speak to all of us and in our weakness and our dependence we turn to him we can do
3: thank you very much i'm just going to i'm just going to repeat what i said earlier that you know these are enormous subjects you know and topics and we cannot obviously do justice, you know, just in a few minutes this evening. But I'm so grateful for these fabulous questions, and you know, everyone. Sorry, we've got plenty more time. I'm just reminding you that you know the, the panel are not rushing off, and this, you know, with a lot of these things, this might well just be the start of conversations. And you know, there, there are people here. We would love to carry on these conversations with anybody because I, I have a hunch that some of you may leave thinking well, they've just started to scratch the surface. You know, if if you'd like to, we'd love to, you know, there are people who would love to take these conversations on further with you. I've got a couple of questions about prayer, which again, I'll just sort of, I'll read them together because if the panel can um,
2: sort of address them. So
3: one person asks, why do you need to pray if God is already aware of all of your thoughts? And another person asks, says, as a Christian, I understand that God knows everything about the
5: future. How can praying make a difference? I think the the first question there, to use an analogy, might be a bit like saying, you know, why do I need to tell my my wife or my girlfriend that I love her? Because she already knows that. Um, It's about... Uh, a relationship. It's not that the other person uh, would be ignorant if you didn't inform them about something. It's the fact that you inform them about it is part of what it means to be in relationship with them and to deliberately communicate to them and to relate to them. Um, so of course God you know, doesn't need us to ask him for things in order for him to know that we want them or that we're interested in them or so on. Rather, he wants us to turn to him in prayer because he wants, for our good, primarily, uh, for the good of the world, for us to be in relationship with him. And I think, you know, from, from, from our side of that, to, to be in relationship with someone, we need to focus our attention on someone and, and to, to, to deliberately, consciously open ourselves up to that other person, be that your wife or your girlfriend or, or God.
0: And I think there's a parody of prayer that sees it as a means of me twisting God's arm to do what I want Him to do. Mm-hmm. And that is not Christian view of prayer. A very simple one, okay, is actually God, me allowing, allowing myself to be aligned to God's will. It's God changing me mm-hmm. and, and thereby changing some of the things in the world around me rather than me changing the way that God sees things. Mm-hmm.
4: To my mind, the, the, the great mystery of prayer is, really comes into focus when he taught his disciples to pray. He didn't give them a great long spiel of things that you do you you pray this and pray that. It's very simple. First of all, our Father. We come to God as a loving Father, the transcendent God who created the world in heaven. May your name be honoured. This word hallowed is lost in our culture, isn't it? I can only translate that as, be honoured, may your name be honoured. So the first requirement of our prayers is to honour Christ's name, the name of God. And then he goes on, your kingdom come, your rule in the world, come among us. your will be done on earth as in heaven. Now those are the basic ingredients that we should pray for. We, we, we pray to a loving Father to, for the honour of his name, and then we're wondering what we do about it. How can I extend God's kingly rule in the world? And then it goes on, give us enough bread to live by. Give us forgiveness of our many sins in the way that we are learning to forgive others. Keep us from evil um, and don't lead us into temptation. It's a terribly simple prayer, but it's all about the honor of Christ's reputation, his name, Um, and his kingly rule in our lives, what we then go out and do as we get off our knees and go and so forth.
3: Thank you very much. I've got two questions now about the Bible. Um, Firstly, what do we know about the people and methodology uh, who wrote the Bible? So the people who wrote the Bible and the methodology that was used to write the Bible, how did they choose which books to put in? And the other one, uh, does the church disagree with academics about the nature and origins of scripture? Do academics agree with each other? <laughs> 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 when you university, read That that read that, that question.
5: <laughs> Well, of course, not all, not all academics believe that the Bible is the the, uh, the word of God. Uh, but in terms of the historical process of its production, I think there's at least large and general uh, agreement. Um, obviously, the, the Christian Bible includes the the Jewish scriptures from the from the Old Testament uh, times. Uh, but then, in terms of the the Christian scriptures, the four Gospels, the various letters. Uh, that are there in the New Testament. They're, uh, they're all uh, first-century documents. Um, the Church, when it was uh, recognising uh, later uh, in sort of the second, and third centuries which documents were part of their scripture, uh, basically followed the rule that they should look for first-century documents rather than documents that were outside of that uh, sort of first generation. people who knew Christ or knew people who knew Christ Uh, and that's why they rejected um, you may have heard of some of the so-called Gnostic Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and so on which come um, from sort of the mid second century uh, onwards Uh, and those decisions were not decisions enforced by sort of uh, you know if you've read Dan Brown the Council of Nicaea. Uh, or or by the the Roman Emperor or whatever, Um, it was a a process of recognising which which texts the church at large were already using and had recognised were the texts that were in touch with, most in touch with the Jesus tradition because of their their earliness and who they were written by. Mm -hmm.
1: Much is made uh, by some people of the uh, so-called Gnostic Gospels and saying there has been this conspiracy to, to remove them. And it's interesting, I've got copies of uh, most of them myself, and it is interesting how <coughs> if you take the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, uh, there are two Gospels of Thomas. One's uh, uh, called the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, found in the excavations in Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And what's interesting about that is that it actually is, is very very much tells the same stories uh, as we've got uh, in the four Gospels. And we know that Luke himself said uh, many have undertaken to write an account of these things. There were other writings, as indeed there were other writings of Paul. Paul refers to uh, his letter to the Laodiceans and says read that, uh, but we haven't got it. Um, uh, but that the so Gospel of Thomas, but that is the so-called infancy Gospel of Thomas, which has the stories about Jesus uh, as a little boy getting really upset because another boy ran into him, and so he curses and he goes blind. About taking, um, uh, forming um, clay pigeons, and then they turn into real pigeons, and so on, and so forth, like that, which doesn't square with the story, uh, the stories that we read in the Gospel. Um, so I think the, as it's called, the canon. Uh, of scripture, which was uh, the early canon, what's called the Moratorium Canon, was formed very early um, and there was only minor changes later to, to it. Um, I think we can be confident that is what was recognised by the early church for good reasons. Uh, um, of course the fundamental uh, there's, all, there's a whole bunch of other questions about whether it's been transmitted reliably over the years, we have to look at the early manuscripts, so on and so forth like that but I don't know, much uh, pre any questions. So.
0: Speaking as an academic but not a theological academic, um, there was a tradition, particularly within the 19th century, of trying to look at the scriptures just as ordinary bits literature and to critique them uh, over heavily. So it was all the late invention and so written back. I, I think, and um, other not speak more powerfully than I can I, I think those days are gone, but it, we, we now understand. Roughly when the Gospels were written. They're not late inventions in the second century, but they are related to eyewitness accounts. And I think it's also worth remembering that the scriptures were written by people. Uh, it's not that God dictated word for word, uh, write this down, um, but that God inspired people to, uh, to write things in their own way. And so if you read the uh, lots of the, the books that by Bible, they're written in different ways. Some are poetry, some are history. Um, and some are, if, if you have poetry, and it, it's that human side of it that, that comes through within a particular culture. And sometimes, you know, to give the academics credit, is we actually have to unpick that and find just what did that mean when it was written in that style to that, that, that people which we looking at in 20th century lenses don't quite see it the same way. Clearly they're being selective in things they're reading. Um, John says no, there are not enough you know, books in the world uh, to take all that was said about Jesus. They, if you look at the Gospels, a large proportion of the Gospel accounts are concerned that Jesus lasts the last week of his life uh, because that's the focus, that's the important thing. Yeah. Um, so they're not telling the whole story written in history in which we might want to see history in today. They're written with a particular purpose in mind and written through uh, human hands. The Gospels are, of course, the most important
4: documents. Uh, if if you can read anything, you've got to make it take a view on the Gospels and look at this person of Christ. And the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are uh, written. Clearly by different people, but using very similar material and borrowing from one from the other, and some have got their own sources and uh, the, the, the interesting editing job that they have done there. Um, and then the, the fourth gospel seems to have been written rather later. And my view on that is that it was written by John at the end of his life, knowing that the other there were three three apostles who were particularly close to us. Peter, James, and John, you can't keep reading about those three on the Mount of Transfiguration now, that they were the three key players. But John, at the end of his life, Peter knew that Peter and James had both been executed. Um, James in about 44 AD, and Peter probably in 66, 67 AD. And John, at the end of his life, Thinks, well, I'm going to write my own memoirs. He knew that they didn't. He has got the synoptics. He obviously knew what the picture of Christ was being proclaimed to the world, and he then writes this very different, uh, integral piece from one man from his very close relationship with Christ, which makes John very different uh, and, and, in many ways, the more precious gospel. Slightly
3: like related. What do you think about all of Jesus' miracles? Do you think that they are true, or tales of a good man that have been exaggerated over time? And if you'll forgive me, I'll ask another one, which, if you can sort of blend your answers, um, if you follow my (laughs) slight connection. Do you believe in religion over science when there is more evidence to science?
1: Was, I think Keith's uh, going to come in on the science one, and i would Time certainly Saturday. not talk over to. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll talking with people on that. But on the first about one about whether you accept it? the the um, miracles. miracles as as real history, I mean, it's worth looking at history. Keith mentioned it earlier. Worth looking at the Bible. Keith mentioned it earlier. There are parts of the Bible that are clearly poetry. Um, the Bible talks about the trees of the field clapping their hands. You know. It talks about the eyes of God rolling around the world. You know. uh, it's clearly poetry. Um, there are um, other parts of the Bible which are clearly history. They claim to be history. Um, uh, and the Gospels, I'd certainly put in that category. Because Luke, at the beginning of his Gospel, he said, many have undertaken the right accounts. I've carefully gone back to the eyewitnesses and put it together as an orderly account. He's been an excellent um, uh, an excellent historian. So I would say I accept what the Gospels say as, uh, as history, and there is archaeological evidence that Pete can talk about much more uh, that affirms that. The problem I have actually is with there's other passages of Scripture that you're not quite sure is it poetry or is it history? Uh, I don't know, and I have to remain agnostic about that.
4: Just to, to, to preempt the scientists, <laughs> just to say that the truth is not an incidental in the New Testament. Christians are called to follow the one who said, I am the truth. So truth is critical, wherever it is to be found, in science, or in history, or whatever. We don't have a total view of truth at any point. We're grasping and seeking and following it.
0: And I think that's very important. And actually, one thing that, that the Christian faith and the scientists have in common is their seekers after truth. The scientist is desiring to find out the way the world is. Uh, what makes it tick? How does it work? Um, and that gets the scientist out of bed to ask questions in a, 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 every day. Can, can I explain something? Can I find something more about this? That actually doesn't say anything, one way or the other, about the existence or non-existence of God. It simply says that we're finding out the way that the world is It's real search. It's thinking God's thoughts after him as somebody else has put it. It's finding out something about the way the world works, the way that God has made it. But there are limitations to science. It's always inference to the best explanation. We take the evidence that's there, and we we make theories that explain that evidence. And they're tested with time, and tested again, and usually uh, improved with time. Um, But science itself can say nothing about meaning and purpose. It can say nothing about why we're here about what life is all about, about how I should behave. It can answer the how questions, but it really is pretty useless at answering the why questions. Can uh, I I was just thinking, I think the
2: question had the miracles, didn't it? Um, uh, yes. In the Gospels, of course, the miracles are all about um, Jesus saying, this is who I am. And if you read the Gospels closely, you'll find awful conclusions. This man is one way or another saying, I am God. And the miracles aren't just, um, they are mysterious, the of course they are. But they're a sign from a Christian point of view of God coming into our world. So of course things work differently. It's a collision of God's time, um, as of Zacharias time, coming into our time, oh. And God comes <laughs> and he does things differently. In God's kingdom in God's world, things aren't whole and well like we all imagine they should be. And the miracles are important because here is this man who is the Son of God who came in human form, and miracles said, "I am God." This is a sign—a sign of how I want things to be. So the miracles are really important because they—they they ask this question: So who is Jesus? And that is the central point of what we Christians carry on about, It's who is Jesus? If he is who he says he is, as the miracles seem to show, then we should be responding to him in some way and thinking hard about that.
3: Can I follow on from that? I've got three questions which ask in, you know, in, in different ways. It's sort of around the general topic of who is Jesus? Who is, who is this, this person who? gave his name in Christ to this whole religion. Uh, So the first one is, how can we make sense of Jesus being God and man at the same time? The second one is, would Jesus be a more remarkable figure and inspiration if he was just a normal person, not supernatural, and died for fellow human beings? And the third one is, what other evidence is there for Jesus' claim to be the Son of God outside the
2: Bible? Can you hold three in your <laughs> head?
3: Yeah. That's a struggle.
2: Peter's <laughs>
1: making
3: <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to read again? No, like, that's right. No. Who'd like to start? I can start. They're so well behaved, look it. They take <laughs> turns. It's all <laughs> done by <laughs> eye contact. I thought I was gonna have a rabble to control these
6: things. <laughs> I think there's a, a great hall in the first century. It's very difficult to explain unless Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, if, you're willing to, if you want to go in and say, it's impossible that Jesus rose from the dead, we'll have to find another explanation, then, um, then you can rule out to begin with and you'll have to find, out, find another explanation, but I think it is less probable and it really struggles to explain a few things. So first of all, um, we actually have quite a lot of uh, textual evidence that, that happened. The Gospels, they're good evidence. They, um, uh, we have lots and lots of ancient copies of them. Uh, they correspond very well together. Um, and there are all sorts of ways in which we can check that they're reliable. Um, that's for our second. We had a series of, of faithful Jews who believed that absolutely God was, was separate from us, was not three persons, was not, um, uh, 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 could not be incarnate. There was no reason for them to suppose that. There are promises. But there was no, 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 no link to that just yet. And those faithful Jews went to their, many of them, ten of the disciples at least, went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus raised from the dead. Now it's really difficult, and not just them, but many after them. Because they'd seen it. These aren't fools. They saw it happen, and it defied their theology. Because they'd seen it, they were willing to go to their deaths proclaiming it. And there are many other things about their faith that changed in the light of what Jesus is teaching. These guys really did believe it. And why would they go to their deaths believing something that was a lie that they made up? Why not renounce the faith and survive? So there's, I think there's actually really strong historical evidence. If you are open to the possibility that God who created all this, you know, that there is a God who created all this might, this, might have entered our world and might have risen, then actually it really explains the history very well. Um, now, if Jesus rose from the dead, well then we have a lot of good reason to suppose that what he said about himself was true. I've never seen anyone else rise from the dead. And so if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then if he really says that he is God, and it seems that he does, um, why not believe him? Now, it's very difficult uh, to hold together, yeah, it's a good question, it's difficult to hold together the, the idea that God is divi- that Jesus is divine, and Jesus is also human. The question is whether it's logically accurate. Um, It's not like a, 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 someone who's married can't be a bachelor. That's, that's, you're just playing with language. You're making a deliberately contradictory statement. Why might it not be the case that God, who is the source of all this, decided to assume another nature in his own person? Decided not simply to be God, but also to come alongside us as a human being as well. We don't need to be able to get our heads around it. And actually, I, I think we shouldn't be able to get our heads around it. We're not seeing anything else like it. This isn't a normal part of the created, uh, in the material world we've seen. We have significant evidence of it in the Resurrection. It seems to be who uh, Jesus claims himself to be, um, and they would have no reason to believe it otherwise.
4: Well, one of the questions, Emma, I think, implied that if, wasn't for the miracles? Would Jesus just be an ordinary bloke? Um, well, if Jesus was an ordinary bloke, we still have his very extraordinary teaching, and his sayings, and his parables, and his view of the world um, still stand, and it is stunning. I've taken a particular interest in his golden rule. Um, it, it's often assumed that the golden rule is. It's taught by Confucius and as in every religion. It isn't. Can you Christ about the golden rule? Yeah, okay. oh, Yeah, be patient. Be patient. <laughs> the Golden Rule was Christ saying that in everything you do, put yourself in the place of the person you're relating to. Treat others as you would want to be treated. Now, no-one said that before Christ. Uh, if you want to pursue me on that, I've written, there's an article on the Be thinking website on it, And uh, because it all gets very involved in all the, what the different sayings were. But, but there's nothing comparable uh, with Christ's golden rule uh, before Christ came to the world. And, of course, it is that rule that completely shot slavery. I've suddenly got my slave here. I've got to treat him as I would want to be treated if I was my slave. <laughs> it's a game changer. And that is just one of Christ's sayings from the soul of the
5: And of course, so many of, of Christ's teachings are, uh, are not simply ethical teachings, but are teachings about who he thought he was and what role he should play in our, in our religious lives. That, that his teachings, that in so many ways, directly and indirectly, put himself on the level of of the Jewish concept of God. And so if he was simply a man, then the Jews who condemned Jesus for for blasphemy would have been right, Um, as the ancient argument goes. uh, Given that Jesus made these very highly elevated claims for himself, uh, either he was right about that, and he is who Christians think he was, or he was wrong about those claims. If he was wrong about those claims, it's either because he was deliberately, knowingly wrong and therefore misleading people and a charlatan and a very bad man, shall we say, in a moral sense, or he was so self-deluded that he mistakenly believed he was right and he was a very bad man in an intellectual sense. The trouble with saying that Jesus was bad either intellectually or morally is all of the other evidence we have about his character it doesn't seem to square with those options.
0: And, and I think if you find it difficult to grasp, you're in good company. But sort of read the Gospel accounts, and so have they, the disciples didn't get it, first of all. Um, in fact, they, they couldn't understand half the things that Jesus was saying. And as, as they, they, they listened to the things that he was teaching, they saw the light of the earth and they witnessed the death that he died, that then Sir like Thomas can cry out, my Lord and my God. It, it, it's the natural conclusion that the person that they had seen, the things that they had done the teaching that he had, that this person wasn't just a bird,
1: this was flesh and blood in the way that we are, but also God himself. There is that mystery, as one would expect, I'm actually linking back to the first question, and I'm, a, I'm just amazed that I can remember the first question. I'm feeling <laughs> <fine>. <laughs> But linking back to the first question, <laughs> linking back to the first question looking at other faiths, and actually about other faiths being men and women l- trying to get to understand God, whereas um, Christian faith claims to be uh, that God himself has come in the person of Jesus. So when I talk to my Muslim brothers and sisters, they will say, um, you're... In it can't be right because it's too complex because Islam is much simpler. So in Islam you have the uh, idea of the unitary God, Allah, there is one God. In Christianity you've got the mystery of the Trinity, God in three persons. Um, In Islam you've got that Jesus is a prophet, just a man who who was a prophet. In Christianity you've got the mystery of the incarnation. In Islam, you've got the, um, the simple, uh, God adds up your good points, takes away your bad points, you're either in or out, uh, according to that. In, Christ- in Christianity, you've got the mystery of the atonement. And there is that mystery. And if you're going to say, well, one of these is, is kind of created by humans trying to understand and trying to get to God, and one of these is revealed by God, uh, and God himself revealing to us, I would say that the mystery in it, actually somehow gives it that extra authentication. It's what mm-hmm. one would expect. Because there's no way that me, with my little brain, could actually understand God.
3: Mm-hmm. So the mystery is Well, thank is you for then introducing the incarnation, uh, the Trinity, <laughs> and the We haven't actually touched on any of those three no. this evening. But we could be here for hours, and hours, and hours, and hours. I'm going to change tack, because I've got two other questions that coming from a different, and uh, take a different angle now. Uh, talking about going back to the beginnings of the world and animals and humans and, and so on. Does the existence of Neanderthal remains and their similarity to modern humans show we are merely animals and not made in God's image? And the other one, just two this time. If a Christian believes that animals don't go to heaven, Yet believes in evolution, at what, at what point did we start being allowed into heaven? <laughs> wow. They're fantastic questions. Oh, look, yeah.
2: we've, yeah. we've almost done
1: it. This <laughs> <laughs> three seminar series? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> awesome, brilliant. So, some, the on. On i
0: got going to tap some of the new one I Scientifically, as we look at the evidence that we have in all kinds of ways, but not just the fossils. The things within our own genomes, which is some of the most profound evidence for the interrelatedness of all the species that we have and comparing the the DNA within them, and that's the subject I work on. Um, The the inference of the best explanation is that evolutionary processes have been going on for millions of hundreds of millions of years and that's resulted ultimately in us as human beings. And there have been other hominids along the way and Neanderthals are some of those. Um, and genomic evidence says that there is bits of Neanderthal DNA in us. And the further out from Africa you get, the more Neanderthal DNA you've got in the genome than those who stay in Africa and remain, if you like, pure. Um, so the, the like the, the genetic evidence, the fossil evidence, is such that maybe there's nothing special about us anatomically or biochemically, as humans. But yet there is something special about us, isn't there? Now, if our genomes are 98% is the same as that of a chimpanzee, are we 98% the same as a chimpanzee? Is that 98% made in the image of God? Clearly not. There is something special about being human. We could talk for a long time about what it means to be made in the image of God, and uh, theologians and philosophers have debated that for, 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 for centuries. Is it something to do with our intelligence? Is it something to do with our sociability? Is it to do with our sense of moral our responsibility? I think it actually is uh, being made in the image of God is something that says that we're here to express what God is like. In the same way that a conqueror in ancient times went into a country, would stick something up, this is my image, that says, this is mine, I own it. And that's our responsibility as human beings, as people made in God's image, to show to the rest of the world, this is what God is like. So the characters that we show, should express what God is like. Now we're fallen human beings and we don't do that. But that's what it should be for being uh, in the image of God. Now what Neanderthals or whatever other ancient hominids there might have been, what their relationship with God might have been, I can only guess, I can speculate, but I have no solid evidence uh, for that at all. As to the related question of what happens to animals when they die, I have no firm view on that, and I think that the Bible itself is is silent over what what happens. But I do know that God is just. And and, and I do know that in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, that there will be no pain, and there will be no suffering, and that God will put things right in the air. And maybe that some of the suffering that animals have gone through might also be put right in the air. I I don't know. But uh, heaven is, I think, you might say that if heaven is just populated by humans, it might be a rather boring place. And I, I, I say that <laughs> very carefully. Um, there are the, the tree of life. There's there's trees. There's all sorts of things there in in heaven. Um, not that it's some more floating on cloud existence. It's a real physical existence. Heaven it's just going to be so much better than what we've got now. Uh, and how God's going to populate that apart from humans? That's for God that, to know. I think only guess.
2: Uh, it's, it's an interesting, obviously, it's a great question, what it means to be made in the image of God. As a Christian, I believe that the fact that we acknowledge that we are made in God's image is very, very significant for how we treat one another. And whatever the Neanderthal humans were like, into were like, um, whatever God thinks about animals. I know that all of us here are human beings and as a Christian I believe God's word tells us that we're made in the image of God and that makes us distinct. It's a reason for me treating somebody else, whatever their capacity is, whatever their incapacities, like somebody who is honoured and who is in God's image. When creation happened, and I was speaking as a Christian, and you might disagree with my view. When creation happened, God brought all the animals along to Adam and said, give them, names, give them names. And Adam was working in cooperation with God. <laughs> and right at the beginning, God made the animals and then he made man. And the difference was that it says he gave his breath to them. And man was distinguished by the fact that God's breath enlivened him. Um, and that's obviously a theological concept, I know. But God marked man by bringing his breath into them and distinguishing them from other life forms. I think an important thing is, and it's not that man is like God, so we're nice to each other and want to do good. The fact
3: that God,
2: God's image is, is prior. It's prior to our capacities. God made us. Um, and a natural an expression in the end of me being made in God's image but that comes out of me, whether I like it or not. Um, I'm relational. And I guess above all, I stick relationship with God. That's a sort of fundamental, underlying thing about being made in God's image. I have a calling which says, somewhere there's God. That's my home point.
4: <laughs> the psalmist made the point that we're not like horse and mule who have no understanding. And it's the very fact that we can talk so much and share these ideas and wrestle with them marks us out massively from the rest of the animal kingdom. And one of the earliest statements about man, uh, earliest in terms of the, the books in the Bible, uh, is that statement at the beginning, that we're made as stewards to be responsible. So God, making us in his image, sets us out to have control and stewardship over the world. And that's got all the implications of science, and from the, my medical hat on, Christian's attitude to medicine is part of this moral stewardship. I've just had so many patients over the years who think it's unchristian to take tablets uh, and, and cry away from science uh, and trust to heaven knows what. But they won't do the obvious thing they should do. Um, for we are supposed to be responsible stewards. And we have got understanding. And we've got to, got to use it.
3: Thank you. Uh, changing tack again, we have well, we've got sort of four questions, and it, it's around the area of free will and damnation and heaven and hell, and the, all the sort of the tensions uh, sort of within uh, you know within that, that sort of area. If I can read out the questions, and forgive me, in the interest of time, I'll just I'll, I'll group them together. see how our panel can um uh what, what they can make of them so if god gave us free will why is the other option eternal damnation why did god say he gave everyone free will when everyone was made to believe they had to go to church or they would go to hell or be plagued by god uh and then one more sort of free will and suffering. When did the fall of man occur? If it was inherently part of us, then isn't it God's imperfect creation rather than our fault? And then, sort of with the, sort of the problem of evil, sort of going on to the devil as well, why did God create the devil if he knew Due to him being omnipotent, that he was evil. Just, just, you know, in a minute or so.
1: <laughs> if, if I just offer one thing, perhaps it might, it might help. It, it's, it, the Bible is very clear that God doesn't want anyone to perish, He wants everyone to come to know Him and to receive His forgiveness, come into a relationship with Him. But we have free will to reject that. Um, and the problem with damnation even the term damnation is the idea that God is willingly choosing to send someone to hell I I don't understand I don't think God does send people to hell people choose that for themselves with their choice, so it's like God says I love you, will you live in a relationship with me? and if you turn and come to him and say yes I will then we live in a relationship with him here and eternally, if you say no I don't want to, I don't want to live with you, God says I still love you will you come into a relationship with me? If you still say, no, I don't want to, and turn away, God says, I still love you, will you come into a relationship with me? If you still say, no, I don't want to, uh, my understanding is there will come a time when God says, okay, you've got what you chose. You chose to have total separation from me. Uh, you have what you chose. And, and I, I think that's a helpful way of kind of understanding it, that, that, that passage that God doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to know him.
4: Jesus had this way of taking up the world around him to illustrate what he's saying. And you could imagine him walking along and saying, Do you see the smoke rising over there? Smouldering away. we uh, bonfire in the garden It's done this for the last five days. It just keeps going. It's sort going of to find something else to burn. Um, but the point is that this was Gehenna, the rubbish dump. And he said, it was a vivid picture of what happens at the end of the day if your life is trashed and there is no meaning and you walked out and left God. So, well, look at the rubbish dump. And the word that he used again and again to talk about uh, hell was actually destruction. Um, so, you know, I think we should n- not buy into this view of eternal punishment in hell as being something to do with continuous time. Time is part of our world, and not part of eternity.
5: Yeah, I think that also ties in with the the idea that God, we were talking earlier about suffering, saying, well, God will eventually do something about suffering. He will eventually do something about evil as well. And we want it, and often we complain that God hasn't yet done enough about evil. and we should all think, well, if you did do enough about evil, where would that land us at this particular time? You know, But there but for the grace of God. But eventually God God will create the new heaven and the new earth, but there isn't sin and evil or, or suffering, and he will triumph over evil. And I think uh, the, the flip side of heaven is part of that, God triumphing over evil, destroying that which is evil in the sense of, of having permanently... Uh, rejected God in his values and turned its back uh, on God. Um, so it, it's part of what we actually we, we inherently want and desire God to triumph over evil and to, for there to be a hope that evil will be defeated. Uh, and uh, that's what the, the doctrine of heaven and hell, you can't really have one without the other, it's that hope that that doctrine fulfills. Um, but as a prerequisite for us being able to freely choose to be with God, so that God being with us is not a matter of um, Him, you know, just puppeting us and forcing or forcing us, uh, sort of you know, pre-programmed robots doing what our master tells us, is that we have the freedom. We do have the freedom to reject God, and, and ultimately, God respects that freedom. In you could say God, God loves us so much that he is willing to allow us uh, that dignity of freedom to reject him, to reject our Creator, to reject the source of all love and goodness. Um, and yet uh, God is willing to suffer that rejection himself um, in order that we have the, the possibility of freely choosing to accept his love.
0: I think one of the questions of that was asking when evil or sin or whatever you want to call it, where did that originate? And I think my honest answer is I don't know, but I know that it's here now I'm responsible for my part in that. I cannot say the devil made me do it. I cannot say it's all my genes fault. I cannot say my brain made me do it. Whatever I freely choose to do what I do and I often do the things that I know I shouldn't do and I'm held responsible for that. We're not automatons uh, programmed in to do what we're... We, we, have, we have choice, and we stand accountable for the choices uh, that we make. Um, and we make wrong choices, and by the grace of God, we, we can us. Uh, one of the questions that
6: wasn't answered, the, the devil... The Bible doesn't actually say very much about the devil. Um, we don't really know very much, um, but it seems that it's likely that what we're... A, tr- a traditional answer, which seems plausible is that we're talking about a fallen angel. So it's not something that God has decided, do you know what? I'd really love there to be something evil here. No, if <laughs> God's, God's loving, he wouldn't do that. That would be wrong. Uh, God created someone who is good and free, and we're not alone. Uh, so there's humans, but there are also other beings. Why would there not be? We, there may be other beings we don't know about and that God's simply not told us about. It seems as though there's angels, and that one of them has, uh, has, has, has fallen, and allows him the dignity of continuing rebellion as well.
3: I've been given a five-minute warning. Um, I've got three questions here, which, uh, and there are more actually as well, which touch more on the church, you know, and more our sort of modern society. A lot of what we've talked about has been sort of Christianity, you know, go sort of the theology and the context and the history and the Bible and, and so on. Um, I want to read these um, and see if the panel can give us a a very quick start and then we'd love you to join us for coffee and to carry on some of these discussions um and the other final thing is that there are several there are a few people who've asked about the trinity what is the trinity (laughs) so that's the other thing that i would love perhaps we we could wrap up with um Uh, but some sort of um attempt at uh defining what Christians mean when they, they mention the, the Trinity. So we could be here for hours, as I've said, I'm, we're so grateful for your questions and all the thought and huge apologies for the ones I haven't got to. I've tried to sort of group them a bit by theme and so to try to cover most of the main themes that have been represented. So on the church and more our society, uh, and I think they're going to have to hopefully take this up over coffee. Uh, what is the Church of England's view on abortion and euthanasia and what are the basis of these of these views do you think that our patriarchal society is still reinforced by the church even since women are ordained what has caused the decline in church going over the past hundred years so
2: <laughs> those I'm three sorry, questions sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay here for a while. <laughs> and, and, and then coffee <laughs> to, to continue the
4: discussions. Can I take the easy one <laughs> and talk about the Trinity? <laughs> I think one of the commonest misunderstandings about the Trinity is that it's seen as a highly uh, improbable uh, theological construct that doesn't make satisfactory sense of anything. Whereas actually it was a doctrine that grew out of their experience. The Jews, for thousands of years, had had an awareness of God, and then God comes among them, and they, we talked about how they didn't understand who Christ was. And Thomas falls to his knees when Christ is raised, my Lord and my God, and then several weeks after that, Somehow, the Spirit of Jesus descended on them and energized them so that they changed the world and we even count the date from the time when that happened. But it's a doctrine that's born out of experience, the experience of the God who created us, the Son who came among us, and the Spirit who somehow is completely changing the way I look at the world.
5: Yeah. So there's a sort of... um... John Holden would call a bottom-up experience to theory, to explain the experience, way in which the doctrine of the Trinity came about. But looking at it from a philosophical viewpoint, in philosophical theology, uh, one angle on this, philosophers often talk about God as as like the greatest possible being. Uh, uh, And uh, thinking about uh, a capacity for love as being something that makes you greater if you have it than if you don't have it, uh, and then you can think further and say, well, actually, if you think about it, there are, there are three different types of love that only a Trinitarian uh, God could exhibit, that, that a Unitarian uh, uh, God, like uh, the sort of Muslim concept of God, can't exhibit. So you can have uh, the love of a person for themselves, love yourself, you can have God loving himself, but also you can love another. Uh, And because God has more than one person, he has, if you have two people, you can have loving another person. Actually, if you have three persons, you can have loving with a loved other. You can love with someone that you love. Now, you don't get any more types of love if you add more more people to the equation. But if you have three people to the equation, you can have self-love, loving another, and loving with another. And, and therefore, that Trinitarian doctrine of God allows God to express all of the basic forms of love, which would seem to follow from the concept of God as the greatest possible being. So there's a sort of philosophical route down to this vision of God, which we we probably never have, have thought of ourselves, apart from the revelatory uh, experience that the doctrine came from initially. But then actually, when you, you think along alongside that in philosophical texts, you actually see there's a way philosophically that that makes a great deal of sense as well. Uh, And these two sort of bottom-up and top-down ways of thinking both converge on this doctrine of the Trinity.
1: Thank you. You you had another quick one there, didn't you? What's the Church of England's view of uh, abortion and euthanasia? Abortion,
3: euthanasia, the role
1: of women, and... First first of all, I I think I would want to say is that um, there is no Church of England. Uh, I don't speak to the Church of England after David do that. But there is no Church of England view on on uh, you know because the church uh, is a, a bunch of people who uh, in whom Christ lives, who who've become Christians and we're united as one family. But like all families, we disagree on all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one thing I think we will we'll all agree on uh, if we are in Christ is that people are valuable. That God loves you. God loves every single one of you. God loves you right from, uh, right from the beginning to right uh, at the end. Um, and I think that underpins uh, what we would then say is we have to wrestle with the actual ethical questions about abortion. It is amazing. And euthanasia. The one thing we can all agree on, I think, if we're in Christ, uh, we or will agree on, is that God loves every single person.
3: Is that a point to stop for coffee? Thank you so much for all your questions, as I've said many times already. Uh, They've been extremely stimulating. Uh, We would love you to stay, I think there's quite a lot of cake over there as well, possibly, and do, the panel are staying around. Uh, We'd love to carry on these conversations. There's also a book table as well. I Think and right Peter Williams and Peter May both have books uh, which they would love to I'm sure um, and uh, a giveaway about. booklet as well and a
4: giveaway booklet for free that
3: sounds like
4: uh, And, and I add, um, if you'd
6: like to ask some of these big questions over a longer period of time mm-hmm. uh, we're starting something called an alpha course um, uh, next Wednesday so this coming Wednesday uh, it will be down at St. Denny's church we're two churches that we often work together uh, so dance at St Denny's church Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. now there are meant to be some flyers out but I made a mistake and there aren't any so if you're interested uh, come and chat to me, and I'll give you more, more, more details. It's a, 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 a discussion-based group. Uh, with start with a free meal, a video to, um, uh, with, with to introduce a topic, and then a really open discussion that's chaired to make sure the conversation flows really. You can bring any questions you like. Uh, there's a couple of people, uh, a few people here uh, tonight who've been on office before, um, and, and, and maybe they can recommend it as well. Um, but I, I'd love to see you there. And how it oh, and we. What's that? How long is the course? course? Uh, nine weeks. Uh, it is, and I understand summer. So if you're away at some parts, feel free to drop in, um, but do let us know so we can cater for you. Fantastic. Well, we're going to draw to a close. Thank you,
3: thank you so much for coming, and do have some cake. And